Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, committed to researching innovative treatments to address unmet needs in head and neck cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about head and neck cancers with Dr. Ramatala Ramadi. Dr. Ramadi is an assistant professor of surgery at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery at Yale and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So there's a lot of things in the head and neck, right? There's eyes and nose and ears and throat and tonsils and, you know, skin and teeth. And when we talk about head and neck cancers, what specifically are we talking about? I'd like to talk about head and neck cancers that involve what we call the upper aerodigestive tract. That's basically your mouth, your throat, and your voice box. Okay, And how common are those? I mean, most of us think about cancer and we know the big ones, right? We know breast cancer and lung cancer and colon cancer. Very few people talk about voice box cancer. How how common are these head and neck cancers? Fortunately, not that common. There's about 60 to 65,000 new cases of head and neck cancer in the United States annually. Uh, It's a much bigger problem globally, about 500,000 cases. But again, in the United States, about 60,000 new cases. And, and what causes it? So various risk factors. The most common risk factors are tobacco use, mm-hmm. alcohol use, and in the last few decades, uh, HPV-related head and neck cancers, in particular HPV-related cancers involving the tonsils and the base of tongue. So, you know, many of us, when we think about HPV, we think about cervical cancer, we think of it as a sexually transmitted disease. So how is it that HPV causes oral pharyngeal cancers? I mean, is that from sexual contact or is that a a systemic spread? Like, how is it that HPV causes tonsils getting cancer? Exactly. As you just mentioned, it is a sexually transmitted infection. And the mode of transmission as it pertains to head and neck cancers is similar. Uh, It it involves... um, oral sex, basically, as the main mode of transmission. And so when we think about HPV-related cancers, um, you know, we often talk on this show about HPV vaccines. So is that effective in head and neck cancers? Is it the same strains as you would get in cervical cancer? It is, in fact. Um, So there are what are called high-risk types of HPV, in particular type 16 and type 18, which are associated with cervical cancers and other cancers in the sort of genital area. And similarly, in oropharyngeal carcinomas, 70% of them in the United States that are HPV-related are mostly related to HPV 16 and 18. And so, so really, in order to prevent head and neck cancers, just like cervical cancer and anal cancers, vaccination is recommended. Absolutely. In fact, the uh, Centers for Disease Control ha- advise vaccinating boys and girls starting from the age of nine. Um, and individuals can be uh, vaccinated up to the age of 26. 
what if what if people haven't been vaccinated? They're, you know, now 28. Uh, let's say they still haven't been exposed to HPV. Um, is there an opportunity to get vaccinated beyond the age of 26 or is that a hard cutoff by the CDC? It's not a hard cutoff. I mean, it's, it's mainly a recommendation. Certainly if an individual uh, were to have never engaged in any sort of uh, sexual, sexual contact activity, yeah. or activity, then absolutely it would be very reasonable for that individual to undergo vaccination. Another thing that could be considered is to be tested to see if they have antibodies in their in their uh, blood system um, against those uh, HPV surface markers. And if they were negative, then in that individual, theoretically, uh, vaccination would be of benefit. Hmm. Good. Good to know. So, so are those the only ways to really prevent head and neck cancers? Don't smoke, don't drink, and get vaccinated. Those are the big risk factors. Absolutely. Obviously, uh, if there is a strong family history of cancer um, or any other sort of genetic predisposition, then it's kind of difficult to change those circumstances. But again, tobacco, alcohol, and HPV are the main risk factors for head and neck cancer. Yeah. You know, the the other. The other thing that you mentioned, which ties into risk factors, I think, is is the fact that this is particularly common in certain parts of the world outside of the United States um, and, and certain cultures that come from various parts of the world um, may have habits uh, that predispose to head and neck cancers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, in particular it, regions of the world like Asia and certain um, countries within Asia, there is uh, a tendency to use something called betel nut. Yeah. Uh, betel nut is actually uh, two different things. It's the leaf of the, the betel tree, which is used to wrap the areca nut, which is a the fruit of the areca plant. And uh, it's basically um, mixed in with other things, in, uh, including nicotine, and uh, individuals place it within their mouth. So uh, the use of betel nut uh, increase the, increases the risk of oral cavity cancer, so cancers involving the tongue, uh, the inner cheeks of the mouth, uh, the flora mouth, uh, are more related to, to the use of betel nut. Uh, and then in other parts of the world, in particular Southeast Asia, nasopharyngeal carcinoma is of a higher incidence. Um, individuals there can have uh, dietary influences that affect the, the incidence of uh, nasopharyngeal carcinoma. Uh, just to uh, explain what nasopharyngeal carcinoma is, it is uh, cancer located in basically the back of the nose. Mm -hmm. And um, so certain um, foods that are cured with salt, uh, the, the, if it's high in the diet, that can uh, um, p potentially predispose to nasopharyngeal carcinoma. And also the Epstein-Barr virus is associated with nasopharyngeal carcinoma. So those two uh, predispose individuals to that type of cancer. Epstein-Barr virus, a lot of people might know that one from mono. Correct. Same virus. Same virus. So if you've had a history and, you know, many people who went to college uh, used to call mono the kissing disease. Uh, um, so if you got mono when you were in college, does that put you at an increased risk of getting nasopharyngeal cancer later in life? Not really. It's, it's quite a rare uh, cancer. Um, and uh, that relationship uh, here in the United States, we just don't see.
Okay. So so there are a number of risk factors for developing these head and neck cancers. Um, really, the, the nice thing about it is that many of these risk factors, aside from family history, which, as you said, you can't do much about, you really can do something about. You, you, you can avoid um, alcohol, smoking, uh, um, eating betel nut if you're from that particular part of the world. You can get vaccinated and so on. Absolutely. Which is also why we've noticed a decrease in head and neck cancer, in, in particular of, of the voice box over the decades due to reduction in tobacco use. So, so after we talk about prevention, what we often talk about when we're thinking about cancers is if you can't prevent the disease from occurring, can you at least prevent the disease from killing you? Uh, and, and oftentimes we do that with secondary prevention or screening. So is there a a screening test uh, for head and neck cancers? Should people be going and getting, you know, a doctor to look inside their mouth every year? Or how should that work? Um, Great question. We don't have specific screening tests, but certainly if someone were uh, smoking on a very regular basis uh, and in combination with significant alcohol intake, uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea Uh, to see their primary care physician on an annual basis and have it checked. Um, Obviously, if there were any new symptoms that the patient had that were unusual to them, in particular changes in their voice that may signify a a lesion or uh, a growth uh, on their vocal cords, uh, that would be a reason to uh, seek medical attention for further investigation. Certainly, if they noticed uh, a an ulcer or pain in the mouth associated with bleeding, some irregularity that was never there before that can be brought to their doctor's attention or uh, they can seek an uh, um, evaluation by an ear, nose, and throat doctor or uh, perhaps even um, their dentist. Or sometimes it's their dentist that you know notices it on examination you know, during a uh, routine dental visit. Yeah. So, so you know, I think one of the things is is that we often neglect uh, to really look inside our mouths, right? And we kind of think, oh, well, you know, I have a little bit of a mouth sore. I, my tooth hurts a bit. I have a little bit of a cough. So my voice may have changed uh, because maybe I was yelling too much at the football game last night, whatever. When should these symptoms really trigger us to get things checked out? Head and neck cancers are not very common. Nobody's thinking top of mind, oh, my gosh, that nosebleed might actually be a nasopharyngeal cancer. Um, but sometimes it might be. Uh, that's a great point. I think that any symptom that persists over four weeks is worth being evaluated. So that persistent th- sore throat, uh, perhaps uh, reduced hearing in one ear, uh, it, it, you know, uh, uh, reduced hearing, um, a nosebleed, recurring, recurring nosebleeds, uh, um, pain with swallowing, difficulty swallowing, changes in the voice, uh, anything that uh, has persisted over four weeks is worth having evaluated. Or often patients come in because they've noticed a lump in their neck. And that would signify that potentially something is lurking in their, in their throat and is now metastasized or spread to a lymph node in the neck. Yeah. Um, 
So so certainly if you have these symptoms, you go and get them checked out. And the first person you'd likely go to is your primary care doctor. Um, so what happens after that? So the primary care physician may, uh, after performing an examination, they may, perf- uh, may refer the patient for imaging with an ultrasound or CT or MRI, depending on the circumstances. But that may set the stage for further investigation with uh, either referral to uh, a physician like myself or for a needle biopsy, perhaps, if there was a mass in the neck or perhaps a biopsy inside the mouth. So, so let's pick the most common head and neck cancer. What's the most common that, that you see? So the type of cancer that's called squamous cell carcinoma, and again, it, it can be involving the mouth, so the tongue or the area under the tongue or um, the back of the throat, so the so, tonsil and base of tongue. So somebody presents with, say, a bleeding ulcer in that area. They go to their primary care doctor. The doctor looks inside their mouth, and lo and behold, sees an ulcer, ultimately uh get some imaging, shows that there's a lesion there. And what usually follows next is a biopsy. How is that done? Is that usually done with a needle biopsy? Is that a surgical biopsy? How how does that take place? So depending on the location, if it's in the mouth and it's easily accessible, we can perform a biopsy right in the office with a little bit of local anesthetic. If, um, if there is a lymph node or a suspicious lymph node in the neck, then we can organize for an ultrasound-guided needle biopsy with the guidance of an ultrasound machine and a thin needle, uh, a specimen would be obtained from the neck mass and that would be sent for pathology. All right. So we can, we can get this diagnosis. It sounds like it's not too difficult to obtain. But after we take a short break for a medical minute, we'll learn how we're going to treat head and neck cancers. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, committed to researching innovative treatments to address unmet needs in head and neck cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about colorectal cancer. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable. And as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Amadi. We're talking about care and diagnosis of head and neck cancers. Now, head and neck cancers really are cancers that occur in the upper aerodigestive tract, your nose, your mouth, your tongue, your tonsils, part of your esophagus. Um, It's a big range of cancers, um, all of which kind of occur in a zone where we often don't pay much attention. One of the important things that Dr. Ramadi reminded us right before the break was if you have persistent symptoms, nosebleeds, mouth sores, changes in your voice, persistent cough, lumpus in your neck, um, things that are causing you concern, 
that haven't been there before that are still there for about four weeks, you really ought to go and get it checked out. And don't be nervous about that because oftentimes it's simply a matter of having a medical professional look in your mouth, see if there's something there, and getting a biopsy to get a diagnosis is often an office procedure. Is that right? Absolutely. So you can get a diagnosis. But the scariest thing about getting a diagnosis, Dr. Ramadi, is that nobody likes the C word. Um, So let's talk a little bit about prognosis. We're going to get to treatment in a minute. But how bad is head and neck cancer? Well, head and neck cancer can be quite bad if it's uh, more advanced in stage. Most cancers are staged from stage one to four. And just to look at it in a simplistic way, stages one and two are what we might call early, and stages three and four are more advanced cancers. So uh, an individual with an advanced stage cancer, the prognosis in a very, again, if, uh, if you want to use numbers and look at it uh, from a simplistic perspective, is uh, a five-year survival of 50%, unfortunately. So um, obviously, like in any cancer, we'd like to um, detect it early and be able to manage it early because the outcomes are far greater. So just one other question that I had lingering from what we were talking about before the break. Before the break, we said, you know, we don't really have great screening. But we do have things that can prevent cancer, uh, so reduce your risk. Uh, smoking increases your risk. Alcohol increases your risk. Getting vaccinated for HPV reduces your risk. Um, but one question I had was, let's suppose you've been a smoker. It's really tough to quit smoking, Dr. Ramadi. Um, and let's suppose you drink. And you, you drink stuff somewhat heavily. Um, In those people, should they routinely go for a head and neck screening? I mean, I know that in our communities, we've had head and neck screening fairs. Should people be going to those and getting somebody to look in their mouth every, every year, every six months? Or is this something that you know, they should really go and get checked out only if they have symptoms. No, I mean, if they are aware of a a head and neck uh, cancer screening day in their community, absolutely, that would be a fantastic idea for uh, for the individuals there to use that resource to get checked out. Because, Because as you said, you know, I'm just thinking about that statistic you gave with late-stage cancers, a five-year 50% survival rate means that there's also a 50% mortality. That's a flip of the coin at five years. Boy, we'd really like to catch these cancers early. So if you can't get screened, at least when you have a symptom, go and get it checked out early so that these cancers can be detected. Let's suppose you do that. You have a sore throat. You notice a lump in your neck. You don't even wait the four weeks. You wait a couple of weeks. It's still there. It's never been there before. You go to your doctor. Your doctor says, good thing you came. We did this biopsy, and lo and behold, we found a little cancer. Now what? So, um, again, we we would start off after the biopsy confirming that it is squamous cell carcinoma, we would do uh, further workup with imaging to assess the extent and uh, of the disease. Is it you know 
just located inside the mouth? Has it spread to the neck? Is it elsewhere in the body? The patient may be referred for a PET scan, which would look for abnormal uptake that you might see with cancer um, throughout the body. And once we've completely staged it and we have an idea of whether or not this is early versus late cancer, then we talk about treatment. Um, Again, to simplify things for early cancers, we can uh, employ or use single modality therapy, for instance, just surgery alone or radiation alone. If it's more advanced in, can uh, in, in stage, then that's where we do, uh, we use a more team-based approach with the medical oncologist and the radiation oncologist, in which case the patient may require upfront surgery followed by radiation or chemotherapy and radiation, or depending uh, on the location of the cancer, that patient may just need chemotherapy and radiation and no surgery at all. So um, at that point, we uh, would have the patient see the other members of our, if you want to call it a cancer team, and we'll come up with the best plan based on that patient's cancer um, the extent of their cancer, location of cancer, and ultimately what's uh, most suitable for that individual. And I would imagine that different cancers are treated differently. So, for example, you know, we lump all of these cancers into the big bucket of head and neck cancers, but I would imagine that a cancer in your nose may be treated differently than a cancer of your tongue may be di treated differently than a cancer of your voice box. Is that right? Correct, correct. And we do go into something called organ preservation in terms of preserving uh, certain structures like the voice box. So in those individuals with cancer of the larynx, uh, there may be a discussion on preserving the larynx with chemotherapy and radiation as opposed to surgery, in which case the voice box is removed. Uh, in terms of cancers that involve the oral cavity, uh, we have to deal with the jawbone. And in those cancers, it's, we oftentimes use upfront surgery followed by radiation or chemoradiation uh, to avoid the uh, potentially toxic effects of radiation to the jaw when given at full doses. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. Depending on the location, we may favor one treatment over another uh, for various reasons relating to function and respect of certain anatomical structures. You know, you gave us the statistic in terms of survival for late-stage cancers. What does that statistic look like for early-stage cancers that are treated with optimal therapy? Uh, pretty good. It could be anywhere between 70 to 95 percent. So that's pretty good. But then the other question that I have is, when we start talking about surgery and chemotherapy and radiation, particularly in the head and neck, where there are so many vital organs that do so many things. They help us to smell and to chew and to taste and to talk and to breathe. What is the quality of life? What are the sequelae? What are the complications of cancer treatment? You bring up really good points there. It, 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 uh, it definitely can have an impact on an individual's quality of life, and it's something that I often discuss with my patients. And we all, as, yeah, uh, as cancer physicians, uh, make it a point to explain that our goal, goal number one is to treat to cure. But our secondary goals are to maintain optimal function 
which, whichever amount is possible. So unfortunately, with uh, combination th uh, therapies, there is certainly um, a likelihood of some dysfunction with regards to everything that you described, you know, impairment in speech and uh, difficulties with swallowing, dry mouth, uh, changes in one's ability to smell and taste. So it's a matter of balancing uh, between getting an oncological cure and trying to preserve function. And it's really, at this point, we, we're doing quite well with cure, and our, our focus is slightly shifting towards optimizing um, quality of life and you know maintaining function for the patient. Uh, certainly uh, with HPV-related cancers of the throat, we are seeing that patients are doing really well compared to those who don't have an HPV-related cancer. And we're, there are clinical trials looking at ways of de-escalating therapy, meaning reducing the severity or the intensity of therapy that we're uh, subjecting the patients to, reducing the chemotherapy uh, or whether or not chemotherapy is even needed, uh, reducing radiation dose. Uh, in fact, we we're, we're sort of going back towards surgery for those for for some uh, for most of these patients now. So, uh, functional capacity, uh, quality of life are definitely important things that we, we keep in mind uh, when treating these patients. Um, we explain to them the potential um, side effects of therapy, and hopefully future studies uh, will allow us to um, more carefully address these critical issues. So, so tell us a little bit more about that, both in terms of why is it that HPV-related cancers do better than non-HPV-related cancers? And second, tell us more about the clinical trials and the new therapies that are coming out that might actually improve quality of life while still maintaining a good cure rate. So your traditional risk factors of tobacco and alcohol basically create over many years of exposure to those toxins genetic damage to the entire upper air digestive tract. Uh, so you, you have a multitude of mutations that have occurred within p potentially all the entire um, throat. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, uh, they tend to have tumors that can be quite resistant mm -hmm. and have multiple types of tumors within the, the, that anatomical subsite. And uh, therefore, those individuals are at higher risk of recurrences of new primary tumors or developing uh, multiple tumors at the same time. Uh, with regards to HPV, we're not seeing that so much. Uh, it, it seems to be more of a... Um, inhibition of certain mechanisms that our body has to prevent cancer. Uh, the virus creates proteins that basically binds to those sort of tumor blocking mechanisms. And therefore, we, we were just seeing that they, uh, patients with these uh, HPV-related tumors seem to do better with, um, with less therapy, in fact. So, so the clinical trials that are now looking at less therapy, um, better outcomes in terms of functionality. Uh, what what are what's on the horizon? Well, so th there there was a a, a um, clinical trial looking at primary surgery um, 
for HPV-related cancers, and um, and then appropriate uh, what we call adjuvant therapy, which is either radiation or chemotherapy and radiation after surgery. And so that trial has been completed. We don't have the results to it, so we're we're quite kind of awaiting uh, the results from that to give us shed some light on to see the feasibility of de-escalating therapy in those patients. I think the other broad frontier is the use of immunotherapy in head and neck cancer. We're seeing more of its use in recurrent cancers and metastatic cancers, and again, uh, there may be some promise there. We're certainly seeing a lot more benefit in other types of cancers in the head and neck region, in particular um, rarer salivary gland cancers as well as melanomas where immunotherapy seems to be um, providing significant response to some individuals with those cancers. Dr. Ramatullah Ramadi is an associate professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.